Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Croc School's dedicated community, fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. Voice of San Diego podcasts are sponsored in part by a proud supporter of Monarch School and Make-A-Wish San Diego. As a nonprofit news organization, we depend on our members, foundations, and sponsors to provide funding to support the investigative journalism you expect from us. We are very grateful for all of our supporters, and we will recognize them during the show. Make-A-Wish San Diego grants wishes to children with critical illnesses in San Diego and Imperial Counties. Visit sandiego.wish.org to find out how you can help make wishes come true. And Monarch School has served San Diego for nearly three decades, beginning as a one-room education center and expanding into a K-12 comprehensive school designed to educate homeless youth. To find out more or to get involved, visit monarchschools.org. If you like Voice of San Diego's work and want to become a sponsor too, Contact us at development at voiceofsandiego.org. My mom says my neighborhood school isn't good enough. How am I supposed to know my kids are getting the best education possible? Welcome to Good Schools for All, a podcast from the investigative news organization Voice of San Diego. We cut through the jargon and polarized debate to get you the news and ideas that matter. Good schools are at the heart of our democracy and economy, and we're about good schools for all kids. We hope you'll learn and maybe teach us something. Enjoy the show. There should be an excellent school in every community. Hello, I'm Scott Lewis. And I'm Laura Cohn. Hi, Laura. Hey, Scott. How are you? I'm doing all right. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Midsummer, maybe a little midsummer blues, but I'm headed to New York City shortly, so things are looking up. What are you doing in New York? Just uh, playing. Oh, good. Yeah. We, uh, I only have one play mode in the summertime. Yeah. It's, it has to do with the ocean? Swimming pools. Well, I, I play myself in the ocean and the kids somewhat, but uh, swimming pools. Ah. We go to every swimming pool we can. And that's the only thing I'm really good at as a dad is being in the swimming pool. You throw them. You... Oh, Marco Polo. Lots you... of throwing. There's we have a game called Snails on a Whale where they have to hold on. Uh huh. Yeah. Um. There's a book, you know, Snails on the Whale. Snail I don't on the know Whale. That one, no. And uh, yeah, it's really the only thing I'm. You know, it's my only contribution <laughs> as a dad is that uh, I can have good fun for three hours in a pool and we're all sunburned and wrinkled and it's good. <laughs> That's a good thing to be good at. Yeah. Um, love pools though. And, you know, I just kind of like scope for friends that have one or the why, the why in La Jolla or the why, all the whys. I got all the whys down. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, as the summertime goes on, we're getting more and more information about, uh, various school districts. Obviously it's not a time, um, necessarily for, for in-class news, but there's a lot of news of governance. The other day, the uh, San Diego Unified School District, for example, announced and put on the ballot, decided to put on the ballot, a new tax increase, a, a school bond. Now, these are construction bonds. 
So in in California, just a little lesson here. In California, uh, it's to get a special tax uh, for a special need, like a stadium or something. It, it requires a two-thirds vote of the people. But to get a general tax just for general needs, it requires a 50% vote of the people. There is one exception, and those are school construction bonds, which require 55% of the vote. For no particular reason. No just particular, a quirk. Just a quirk. <laughs> just like, make it a little harder than just a simple majority. Yeah. So the school district could go and ask for a general tax increase uh, for whatever it wants yeah. for for just 50%. Uh, it could use that money for, for salaries, all kinds of stuff. But it has decided to go for this construction bond. This is a $3.5 billion bond. And it would be uh, $60 per $100,000 of property value. So if your house is assessed, now that's not necessarily what it's worth. Like if you go on you know, one of those websites and it shows what your house is worth, if you were to try to sell it, that's not what it is. It's whatever the assessor values your house. Right, so if which you, can be considerably lower thanks to Prop 13. Yeah, exactly. So if your house is valued at $400,000, then this would be a tax increase per year of $60 per hundred, so $240. Right. Yes. And so $240, that's not nothing. No. Uh, so that's a, that has finally been, that's got its uh, approval from the San Diego Unified School District. So on top of projects already listed in previous bonds, there are a few additions that signal the district wants, you know, a stronger um, legal footing to pursue projects already in the works, among them swimming pools, uh, new district administration center, stadium lights, uh, all kinds of stuff. But they're also focusing heavily on security. Um, they they invoked uh, the mass shootings in schools all over across the country. They want to do more difficult entries, yeah, yeah. entryways. Mm-hmm. And they also talked about plumbing, and we gave them a little grief because uh, they they had this uh, cycle where they were talking about the the lead issue. They said there's you know there was some lead in the Emerson Bandini school, yeah, and. Um, and we pointed out that they had promised in three previous bond state and local bond initiatives that they were going to take care of the plumbing at Emerson Bendini. They still haven't done that. And so uh, they say that will happen next year. That's scheduled for next year, no okay. matter what. Regardless of whether this passes. So just want to make sure that's clear. <laughs> uh, uh, so, but yeah, they're focusing also on the lead issue. So um, uh, they're going to uh, really highlight lead and security. Lead and water and security. Okay, good. Really hitting the chords with that. So, um, and they're also promising that this would be the bond that would um, make it possible for them to get to zero energy usage, just uh, only using solar power and such. Nice. Uh, San Diego Unified also has balanced, uh, passed a largely balanced budget, $1.33 billion operating budget for the next school year. But uh, there's a budget deficit expected, $41 million next year and $35 million after that. If they don't close that next year, they'll all add up together, $76 million. So um, it's part of what we're talking about today. That is on the docket. Is uh, school district finances. So one of the questions I had last year when the San Diego Unified School District was dealing with a big budget deficit was, what are they, why is this happening, right? Yep. It's mysterious. State tax revenues are shooting up through the roof and school districts are seeing uh, increasing revenues as well. And yet 
districts across our region are fe- working on cuts. Well, not that there was not only the revenues going, but there was also the there were actual tax increases, right? The um, the governor's tax increase mm-hmm. on wealthy people, That's and right. and that was renewed. And then there was all these construction bonds, and there was that new formula for distributing funds in the state that brought San Diego more revenue. And mm-hmm. um, the and local so, control funding formula. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And so there was a lot of questions about why in those, why in this moment are we seeing so many structural budget deficit problems? And so we did a story this week at San, Die- San Dieguito High School District. That's your my kids' word. district. They last month agreed to plug a deficit over the next three years by digging deeper into reserves. They're going to deplete their reserves. Um, Board President Beth Hergesheimer. Hergesheimer. Hergesheimer, sorry, told uh, Voice San Diego that increased retirement contributions mandated by the state put the budget in under pressure. And that's the theme all around. So what we're seeing... Yeah, she didn't mention that we pay our teachers the highest in the region. And they added a bunch (laughs) too. Although increased staffing... She said, uh, made, may have hurt our bottom line. It was the right thing to do. And this gets to one of the things I wanted to articulate is it feels like, so first of all, there's a lot going on with retirement. And we're going to talk about that. We have on our show, uh, you and Ashley McGlone interviewed Jason Willis and Kelsey Krauser. Uh, they're from WestEd. They did a paper, quote, the silent recession, why California school districts are underwater. Mm-hmm. And so that's coming up in the show. And, but yeah, I mean, uh, these pressures, the pensions in particular and the changing assumptions there and how big the bills are coming to the school districts. Uh, that's what the school district pointed to, first of all, when it said why it was having trouble with Santa Unified last yeah. year. And across the board, that's the case. Yeah. It's uh, the state recognized that they had had um, too low contributions to the pension fund and too low growth during the recession. And so immediately following the decision to put the local control funding formula in place and the pledge that was part of that to um, accomplish returning the revenues to the school districts back to 2008 levels. But then the next year they announced these increased pension obligations by districts that are just really killing. It's one of the, it's the biggest factor that's really um, hurting districts uh, revenue wise or budget wise. Mm-hmm. So um, what I, what I was kind of getting at is like she says there is the right thing to do to increase staffing, no matter what it does to our bottom line. I think that's like the really illustrative of what is at play here, which is basically that there are no incentives to not push things as far as possible. And that the real art of school district financing and funding and budgeting is to get it as far as possible to where you're not quite insolvent. And like, it's, it's that there's, cause there's no incentive except for like, like you might get praised on the good schools for all podcast <laughs> or something like there's no real incentive to like have us really perfectly balanced budget and nice reserves and all that stuff because you know, you have the real incentives, the real pressure is going to be on paying folks more on the uh, the teachers and the other um, classified employees and such, um, like, you know, making them happy and then making parents happy is going to override, you know, some wonks like, you know, validation for you 10 times over, right? Sure. I mean, they can't run in the red continuously. Uh, there's no magical money out there. They can't print money. So, um, I mean, that's, that's really, 
the enforcement comes from San Diego County Office of Education reviewing their budgets. But yeah, you're right. They, the districts, um, they operate with insufficient information because they have to do their budgeting right when the state is finalizing its budget. Yeah. So they do their budgeting based on some magical thinking and they just hope that the state comes through with enough revenues to kind of make everything work out in a reasonable enough way that they can continue until the next year. But I guess what we're, what we're sharing with our listeners is it's really coming home to roost. And I don't mean in sort of like a, um, a, a revenge way, but just that the districts are actually having to make cuts now. So at this moment when parents like us should be seeing class sizes coming down and more opportunities more for our kids or more supports for kids who are struggling. Um, the opposite is what is what we're experiencing, and it's um, it's really disappointing. Right. So if you're at your school and you're wondering why um, there's more fundraising, please, or there's fewer resources at the school, or libraries are getting closed, or programs are getting shut down, or you see special ed kids who you know you think should be getting more support, should be having a, a, a an aid in the classroom, more, keeping the teacher company, more occupational therapy programs, yep. or more speech programs, or yep. all of these things are the you know right on the bubble of things that get cut, cut back, music programs, other things. And so if you're wondering why that's happening at a time of economic growth, of, of taxes that were increased, of construction taxes that were increased, all that stuff, well, this is how that works. This is our show about that. And again, we've brought in uh, Ashley McGlone, who reports on that stuff for us, and, and Jason Willis and Kelsey Krauser from the West Ed, whose paper we're reviewing. And uh, um, let's hear what they have to say. Okay, great. We are joined in the Great Voice of San Diego podcast studio by phone um, by two experts in school district budgets in California. And I'm also joined by Ashley McGlone, who is um, an incredible reporter working on a lot of issues related to school districts, including their budgets. So Ashley is going to help me with the interview while Scott is uh, vacationing. So um, our guests are Jason Willis from West Ed, which is an education research outfit here in California. He's the director of strategy and performance. And also Kelsey Krausen, who's a research associate at West Ed. And you all published a report in April that caught our eye that really broke down why it is that uh, revenues are really escalating for school districts in California and yet we see many districts in our region struggling with their budgets. It's called silent recession. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what motivated you to do the report and um, why you called it silent recession? Yeah, I, mean, I, I think that's a great question, um, particularly in thinking about you know some of the struggles that uh, K-12 school districts in California have had over um, the last uh, the last four or five years. And I think Primarily, the title is derived from this idea that um, though the general public, you know, perceives that K-12 school districts are uh, doing well, that they've had um, large investments over the last four or five years, which they have, um, they continue to struggle with uh, some some real and practical issues in ensuring that they can provide a high-quality education uh, to all of their students. Um, and so the report really reflects a lot of these deeper investigations that um, allow us to to unpack some more of what I would describe as the kind of technical details of school district um, budgets, 
um, as a means to really kind of broaden this issue to a more general public and make um, others aware of, of, of some of these challenges that school districts are facing while trying to serve um, the students in their community. Yeah, they're incredible fiscal pressures that they're facing. Um, even for me, I know quite a lot about, but just partly from Ashley's reporting, but um, you really dug into some of them and um, it's it's incredible. So let's start with the pension pressure. Um, walk us through a little bit what's going on with districts' uh, requirements to contribute to pensions and where that's headed. Yeah, so the, the public pension system in California affects um, you know, a vast number of, of public employees, not just in public education, but, uh, you know, when you think about other public services in your community, like firefighters and police officers and other public employees that work for the city, county and state government, um, all are affected by uh, the, the two big programs in California that offer public pensions. Specifically, one of the challenges that um, school districts are facing, you know, equal to some of these other uh public entities is this this challenge of um, increasing uh, costs that are associated with the, the pension program itself. Uh, and so when the public pension program is is estimating, for example, the amount of money that they would get from investment returns when they're looking at um, the longevity of individuals that would be paid from the pension program um, and the cost associated with that, uh, what we've seen in California over uh, you know, really over the last dozen years or so is um, a growing cost that would need to be, uh, you know, borne by the public entities that represent those individuals. And school districts are are not immune to that. Um, there was some reform that California did on the public pension program several years ago that in, put in place both for teachers and other uh, professionals in our school systems, escalating rates of contribution uh, on behalf of those employees by the school district's um, to the program itself. And so the, in, the direct impact that that has on, on school districts is as they are considering where they, you know, need to make their investments, uh, both in people and programs for kids, uh, they often are um, coming up with some limited sets of choices because pensions in particular, as costs have risen, um, are uh, a requirement, uh, a mandate, if you will, from, from these programs um, to pay into uh, those funds as a means to support those that um, you know have put in their time uh, working for public entities, you know, over the previous decades. So just so people listening understand, um, your paper lays out the the escalation rate for the contribution. So starting in thirteen fourteen for the CalSTRS, the teacher retirement system, the contribution rate was 8.3%. And this past school year, it was already up to 14.4%. Next year, it'll be 16.3%. And then in 2020-21, it'll be 19%. So, you know, more than two and a half times where it started. That's that's an incredible draw on district funds. Yeah, that's right. And, and, it, and it does, it has created this, this pressure. Um, you know, as we describe it uh, for within the paper that for, you know, senior leaders within school districts, uh, you know, the superintendent, the chief business officer, principals in the schools, um, the board of education, that it really brings to bear um, some really hard questions about where they need to make those um, investment of resources. And, you know, as a, as a public entity serving the kids within these communities, those decisions can be exceedingly difficult and hard. Um, and, 
you know, while the state of California has made significant strides over the last four or five years to make investments in K-12 education, it seems, along with both pension and some of the other cost pressures that we describe in the research, uh, you know, it's making it more and more difficult for school districts um, to continue to stay focused on investments that will enhance the education of kids um, on a day-to-day basis. Where do the pensions fall? It looks like you guys zeroed in on six different fiscal challenges kind of in, in broad view. Are, are, are pensions the number one if you had to put a number one on it or, or is one of the other items you guys identified causing even more stress across the board? I would say in our in our investigation that that when we looked across um, our sample of districts and given you know the work that WestEd does with other uh, school districts throughout the state of California that um, it certainly was one of the key contributors to some of the fiscal pressures that school districts are experiencing. Um, I think some of the other challenges uh, that we mentioned in the research around um, issues of special education and aging facilities are also uh, pretty large contributors. So why don't we switch over to special education now? Um, what's going on with that? What we've seen in California um, over um, the last five to ten years is a increasing enrollment um, of students in um, special education programs. Um, for example, uh, you know we've seen that um, the number of students that are enrolled in special education programs over the last um, five years is grown from 679,000 to approximately 754,000, while the overall kind of K-12 enrollment in the state um, has decreased slightly. So what that means is that uh, there's a couple of factors there. I think the first is that we've actually gotten better as a profession at identifying um, the needs of students that particularly have, you know, behavioral, academic, um, or other challenges that would qualify them for special education programs, which is um, a positive that we're getting them the right kinds of very specific services that allow them to uh, benefit and and prosper in our K-12 system. Uh, but what that does that that also does is that it, it will put increasing pressure on the over overall system itself. Um, we know for a fact that uh, the costs associated generally with um, educating students that are in special education programs um, is generally higher, and there's a there's a, a pretty broad span to that. Um, and so as you have the proportion of the of the population that's growing in these programs, the costs associated with them also grow. Um, and that we've seen this kind of trend in California over the last five years. And um, this is what we would describe as another kind of mandate for school districts. Um, the, the special education program in school districts um, is well protected by um, federal and state law, as well as a lot of case law. Um, that really kind of protect the the needs and rights of these students, um, uh, uh, rightfully so. But again, you know, from the perspective of thinking about how do you manage the school district, how do you manage it to provide a quality education for all the kids that they serve, you know, this is a fiscal pressure that, that many school districts um, across the state of California have been experiencing. Um, and, uh, you know, they've gotten increases through LCFS. Um, and, you know, some of the priorities associated with that. But special education hasn't gotten um, a lot of attention, I'd say, um, until, you know, some of the more recent uh, California state budgets that we've passed in the last year or two. So, Jason, you've been talking about how uh, the population of special education students in California has risen uh, over the last 10 years at the same time as the state overall student enrollment has declined. I mean, that's putting fiscal pressures on 
school districts. Um, have you seen most a lot of districts turning towards, you know, since they don't have dedicated enough dedicated funding for special education, leaning on their unrestricted funds to kind of fill that gap? And are they now trying to kind of pull that money back towards other needs as these other fiscal pressures weigh in? Or are you seeing a, a pattern across the board? Yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, and this is, as I was mentioning before, one of the um, kind of mandated expenditures within school districts' budgets is is around their special education programs. So, so the so the school district has a federal and state obligation to ensure that they fund um, those programs for the students as they're agreed to with the parents um, or the guardian that oversees the the student themselves. And you know, that's again kind of well protected in federal and state law. And so often school districts um, will make contributions from their unrestricted general fund, what we now refer to as the base program through LCSF in California uh, to cover the remaining set of costs um, for special education. And, you know, hats off to many of the school districts in California and many in San Diego County that have really looked uh, to various ways in which to try and stem the costs associated with those programs by um, trying to intervene with students earlier um, to kind of prevent them from needing to get into special education programs, uh, really kind of um, strengthening a lot of the the, um, the early reading and math programs um, and the social emotional behavioral programs in the, in the general education program as a means to to cut back on the necessary investment for those kids um, that would necessarily go into to special ed programs. Um, and it's been you know, it's been it's been an ongoing challenge. I mean, one of the things that we can observe um, across the state of California, as I was mentioning earlier, about you know getting better at identifying certain populations, is that we've seen the autism population increase um, by nearly two and a half times mm-hmm. uh, in the state of California, from forty to a little less than forty thousand to now over a hundred thousand over the last ten years. And this has been a great kind of benefit for those students that need those services. Um, but you know, when you think about that kind of investment lined up with a lot of other demands for school districts, it makes for some uh, very difficult and tough conversations that communities have to have about where they're investing, you know, a limited set of resources. Okay, so we've talked about two of the big um, drivers of this silent recession. Um, can you talk about aging facilities, the, the other one that you mentioned earlier? Yeah, so this is one of those um, I would I would probably describe as more obscure, uh, you know, elements of a of a school district's budget. Um, but this really kind of accounts for the the ongoing operations and maintenance of of school district facilities. And so many communities are probably familiar with bond programs that school districts will ask taxpayers to invest in, which include um, expenditures to cover kind of new buildings or um, significant renovations on aging facilities. And those bond programs, you know, have been successful throughout the state of California in helping to create um, an environment for students that um, that is welcoming and safe and and uh, and really um, conducive to, to to learning on a on a day to day basis. But not really One everywhere, because not all districts pa- have bond programs going. What what do we know? What percent of districts have operating bonds or sorry facilities bonds in operation? Um, we don't we don't have that information for. For the state of California, or for, um, for 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 San Diego County, and you're right, not all school districts will have um, bond programs, and that's really based on the kind of needs of that local community and how they think about um, their facilities relative to the resources that they have available. 
And one of the things, one of the effects that we've seen um, as a result of the Great Recession is that, you know, school districts are making some really hard choices um, around investing in core programs versus other necessary needs. Uh, you know, clearly the maintenance and operation of the buildings is a need, but when it comes to thinking about a limited set of resources, um, school districts would, you know, often um, deprioritize that <clears throat> that need in a means to ensure that there were, you know, high quality, competent teachers in the classroom, um, ensuring that, you know, there were other professional staff that could be there to support um, students in the middle of the, the Great Recession. And so over a period of time, what that does is it, um, it, it creates this backlog of, of needs around maintaining, you know, facilities and the operation of those facilities. And so what we've seen in, in the state of California is um, that, you know, as a result of that, as we've seen in other areas, uh, this kind of need to kind of make these investments in the near future as a means to continue to maintain some of those facilities. And as you point out, um, some communities have vastly different needs than others. Um, based on, you know, their their prior investment. Yeah, vastly different needs, but also vastly different willingness of voters to approve capital bonds. Even when a community is willing to to put forth, you know, the approval needed for a bond, it's then on the district to prioritize the types of projects that would fix the infrastructure um, to help correct some of the aging facility pressures that, that they're facing. Um, I know locally, you know, some projects... For San Diego Unify, they're going for their third multi-billion dollar bond this year. It looks like that'll be finalized possibly in July. Um, but some of the same, you know, plumbing re- uh, replacements that have been on was on a bond in 2008, was on a bond in 2012. It's going to be on the 2018 bond again for the same school. Um, it's still on the old list. They just haven't gotten to it. They prioritized other projects first. So um and I think you guys talk about that too. I mean, there's there's the outside external pressures, but then there is some local accountability and decision making that that can make an impact on on these sorts of things. Yeah, I mean, they absolutely can. I think one of the one of the great benefits that came along with the control funding formula is it really um, it reset the benchmark, if you will, um, for the ways that school districts are engaging their community around both their resource investments and how those resources are aligned to, to their priorities. Well, um, well, yeah, we'll get to solutions in a second. I do want to give you a chance to tick through the other three quickly, maybe tick through the other three big factors that you identified in your silent recession paper. Yeah. So I mean, one of the, a couple of other things that we, we saw in, in our, in our review, um, you know, were really around uh, matters of healthcare costs, which are also considered a benefit um, and we've you know seen this national debate uh, over the last five to ten years as well, um, with some solutions being put in place and then rolled back. Uh, you know we've also observed um, this matter of a teacher shortage um, that we've seen kind of growing across the state of California, and I think a lot of this has to do with you know actually being able to afford to live um, in the great state of California. Uh, you know, unfortunately, the, the, the rate of pay um, that many of our teachers and administrators in our public schools receive um, do not compete favorably with other types of positions that uh, graduates coming out of their, their bachelor's or out of their master's could, could receive. Um, and so what we've seen as a result of the economy coming back, um, it's been great for kind of, um, you know, continued investment in public services. But what it's also meant is that um, potential prospects teachers in the classroom, principals for our schools, central office um, administrators, superintendents, is that they have 
um, other opportunities that they could potentially take advantage of. And what we've seen is that many of those individuals are choosing those other paths. Um, and so what this has done is created difficulty for many local school districts to secure people into positions that they need um, to support kids in, in, in their learning. And, you know, finally, we see, um, you know, this matter, this isn't applicable to all districts in California, but um, certainly for, you know, places uh, like San Diego Unified um, and similar types of communities across the state of California is a, is a um, declining enrollment. Uh, and and uh, the way that school districts in the state of California earn the vast majority of their, their dollars, what they account for as revenue, is through the enrollment of kids. Um, so when students are not showing up uh, for in those school districts um, year over year, the school district the school district has to necessarily plan for those uh, reductions in revenue and then make subsequent reductions um, in their expenditures to ensure that their their budgets are are balanced on a year to year basis. On that point, I, I think you know you hear okay, there's declining enrollment, um, so school districts maybe need less staff to supervise those those students. But you guys identified a few sort of barriers or obstacles that maybe makes them less nimble um, and able to kind of directly respond in that manner that would cut costs sort of to equate with the lost revenue. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I, I, I mean I, that's certainly true. I think when a lot of the kind of policy and regulation was was written for California school districts. Um, it was written with, you know, a very stable environment in mind, meaning that communities would continue to educate roughly the same population of students that they were established to serve, and that, you know, there would be a longer period of time upon which school districts could adjust uh, to changing um, circumstances and environments. Uh, it could be the enrollment of kids. It could be uh, other changes in, in the costs associated with running the school district. And what, what we can see over the last um, particularly decade um, or so, is that uh, there are significantly, um, there are other circumstances that are significantly changing um, those circumstances for districts more quickly, um, which makes it tough for, for them to adjust on a year-to-year basis uh, as a means to, to ensure that their expenditures are, are in line with their revenues. Once the school year starts, um, once you lock in, you know, the, the, the positions that you want to have in the school system, it's very difficult to make those reductions in the middle of the year as a means to adjust your expenditures to your revenues. I think you guys also mentioned, you know, the student losses might not be tidy. So you might not lose, you know, 30 third grade students, you might lose five third grade students and five fourth grade students. And so you might not be able to make a one to one, okay, one teacher cut per every 30 kids lost. And that's a practical kind of obstacle that they face. I think the other kind of the other thing to note, too, is that when you're thinking about declining enrollment within school districts, the, the cost associated with that per pupil amount, like the amount of money that arrives per student, um, some of the vast majority of that is associated with the teacher in the classroom and the school-based services, you know, somewhere to the tune of 70 and um, 80 and even 90 percent. But the, the other portion of those funds are really associated with the infrastructure of the school district, you know, what it costs to maintain the school building itself, what it, what it costs to maintain, you know, the electricity and the water and the kind of ongoing operations, the things you don't often see or think about, uh, you know, when a parent walks into to a school. Um, and it's not as easy, uh, you know, to think about how to adjust for those factors, other factors, um, if a school district is, is going through some pretty rapid declines in, in their enrollment. 
okay, I want to I want to try something here. I'm going to run by you some um, approaches that we see local districts using to balance their budgets and have you um, comment on whether these approaches are a good idea, a bad idea, or uh, something in between. Okay? Okay. All right. Okay. So here's one. Early retirements for teachers. Hmm. Uh, it's, it's actually a, a pretty popular mechanism that school districts across California have used as a means um, to create an incentive for those that are, that are really close to retirement um, to moving out. And the effect, um, and this is you know, pretty well publicly documented, um, is what it does is overall would reduce the cost associated with payroll for the number of positions that, that they have open. Um, right, because you refill the positions with less that. expensive teachers. That, that's right. Yeah. So that basically, you would be recruiting in teachers that have, you know, three, four, or five years of experience as opposed to those that are retiring out of the system that may have put 20, 25, or 30 years in. All right. Here's another one. Selling property. Selling property? Like assets from the school district? Right. Yeah. So again, this is a, this is a one-time kind of generating uh, revenue generating opportunity for the school district. And I think uh, when you think about um, kind of uh, uh, city or kind of community planning and development, um, this actually can be like a real asset to the to the community potentially. Um, particularly if a school district owns a piece of property that they're just not using or they don't see any you know reasonably future need uh, for that property, it can generate some one-time funds that can help to you know, do a variety of things. Like number one, it could help to bolster the, the school district's reserve or what you may consider their savings account um, in case they run into some other fiscal pressures down the line. Um, it can also help to deal to deal with other uh, kind of one-time liabilities. You know, for example, we were talking about aging facilities and so they could take the, the, the proceeds from that sale and invest it back into the maintenance and operation for, for other facilities across the system. Uh, and if the school district is, is thinking about those issues, um, you know, thoroughly, uh, you know, that might actually really help to think about consolidation of some of its schools as a means to really maximize um, the limited resources they have access to. <clears throat> For sure. Although that's super hard to do. Communities hate that. Mm -hmm. Okay, here's another one. Uh, stop approving charters. Uh yeah, I mean, I think that this is a this is probably one of the kind of hotter, more controversial issues in California. Thinking about you know introducing other types of educational options for students in various communities, and while this does have impacts on the, the kind of financial pressures of the school system, um, I think that's really a kind of a choice for the community. Uh, and if the school district is thinking that through along with you know, those that are actually proposing the charters themselves, um, that coming to a common vision, I think first and foremost, for, you know, the kinds of educational opportunities that that community wants for its kids. I mean, that seems to be more of the guiding um, principle that we've seen with districts across across the state, rather than necessarily being motivated um, financially by, um, by that kind of a policy option. Mm, yeah, maybe it has been in the past, but we have districts here locally who are being very explicit about um, wanting to, and also actually see it in the governor's race about um, putting a halt on charters because of the uh, financial pressures that they put on school districts. 
Yeah, and I think that, I mean, this is probably one of, of, of a myriad of, of policies that, that probably should be reviewed or thought about relative to the ability of um, a school district to be able to respond to those kinds of environments. We were talking earlier about some of the, the various <clears throat> policy and regulations that really hamstring school districts as a means to be able to adjust um, more rapidly to the environment. I certainly think, you know, that the, the matter and policies surrounding charters, both their operation and the facilities that are available to them is one area, um, in addition to a host of other of other issues as well. And so I you know we would really encourage, you know, the state or school districts to take a very holistic approach um, in thinking about the ways in which um, school systems are operating, and what are the what are the regulations or policies that that actually enable them uh, to respond effectively um, to the changing environment around them. Um, we see our local districts in the face of fiscal pressures, making a pledge to take all the cuts at the central office and and protecting shielding the schools from the cuts. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that. You know, when I when I served as a as a school district administrator, um, one of the things that I often talked about with my staff and and with the schools that we worked on behalf of is that the only reason we exist is because the schools exist. So I think first and foremost, central office departments you know need to take the approach and the mentality that you know their work um, is really doing that on behalf of the school. Um, and I would say that there are real limits. Um, to applying, um, you know, an across-the-board cut with the central office or depending on the size of the necessary budget reductions that the central office itself would bear the entire burden of those reductions. Um, in particular, because uh, central office costs really only make up a fraction of the expenditures associated with school district budgets. I think our analysis mm-hmm. would suggest that, you know, the school-level personnel um, and compensation associated with the staff uh, can consume anywhere between 70 to 85 percent of the entire district's budget. Um, and so, if depend, again, depending on the size of the cut, it's really going to make, um, you know, it, it, it may not make as big a difference as, as what would be intended. Um, and you could really potentially compromise a lot of the internal controls that are set up to really help maintain the operation of the school district. You know, one basic example of this is is your payroll department. Um, you know, the staff that sit in those departments that do incredible work to ensure accuracy and the efficiency of, of paying employees on a month-to-month basis, um, depending on the way the cut is instituted in the central office, can potentially compromise that integrity. Um, and that's, that can create a lot of other challenges for a school district that um, are uh, can be very unwelcome, if you will, as mm-hmm. opposed to thinking about more balanced um, uh, level reductions in, in spending. Among the fiscal pressures you guys outlined and identified here, any anticipation that any of them are going away anytime soon? And if not, um, have you guys seen or identified successful strategies that have been implemented by schools that maybe aren't in the deficit spending pattern that you've seen in a lot of other districts for the next few years? Yeah, Kelsey, do you want to take that one to start? Sure. I, I, w- I would say I don't, I don't, we don't foresee any of these cost pressures um, going away anytime soon. But we are writing a second paper, which um, should be coming out in the next uh, few months, that deals uh, solely on the types of budget strategies that business officers are employing to try to navigate through this difficult period. So we're really um, excited to, to share some of that 
um, what we've learned from district leaders and how they're making these difficult trade-offs. Can you give us a couple examples? Some of them are um, some of the most promising ones. Um, well, they because staffing um, is such a important um, part of and large part of district budget. So um, there were several um, strategies related to really closely monitoring staffing ratios, ensuring that those and um, that staff are um, in the places that are making the most difference for for students. Um, and along those lines, I think a lot of the strategies that districts are talking about relate to really using a strong evidence base and data to measure um, where their investments are having the greatest return for students and um, making that information available to the public and other stakeholders at school sites in order to make informed decisions about how to prioritize their investments. That sounds smart. <laughs> Is that hard though, right? Because we're talking dollars and cents, you know, trying to be responsible with the dollars and cents that they have and, and making sure you aren't deficit spending. But if we're talking outcomes, we might be looking at things that aren't dollars and cents, right? And kind of, I think there was a point in your paper, you talked about kind of breaking down that barrier wall between the budget offices and other offices to look at maybe that meaningful data to make those tough budget decisions. Exactly. And, and it, what we're seeing is we are seeing that more. I think um, some of this is driven just um, by the local control and accountability plan, the LCAP, and the fact that districts are now um, outlining their goals for student achievement and describing how they'll invest their dollars in order to improve outcomes and then monitoring those outcomes. So it has um, helped to prompt, I think, among other factors, these um, stronger uh, partnerships and um, communication between the educational services and uh, financial services offices. Well, Jason Willison, Kelsey Krausen, thank you so much for joining us. I think um, it can be really confusing for the public about seeing um, the economic health going up and the revenues to school districts shooting up and still to have their local school districts and schools making uh, making cuts so that that increased communication you described um, is super important and also the research you did is, is helping all of us so thanks for joining us today thank you yeah thanks so much for having us thank you